This is not the media. This is hell. And that media, the establishment media, which guided the United States and its citizens' understanding of what reality is and what realities cannot be accepted and are dismissed out of hand, that more traditional media is freaking out about losing the power to control the narrative and losing that narrative to upstarts in social media. But what if that perceived power of social media reveals something deeper about the media, marketing, advertising, and all of that's impact on politics. If we take the focus off the supposed influence of social media, we may be in a better position to recognize the real source of our current political divide. And that source cannot be simply altered by changing up an algorithm, algorithm to make it so. Suddenly we're all getting the allegedly right information to make the right decision that has the right outcomes. And when the study of disinformation and misinformation cannot even define what disinformation or misinformation is, aside from sweeping generalities that encompass almost all information, is a conversation on fixing the problem, if there is one, even possible? What if, in reality, advertising has very little influence over us, just like social media has little impact on our decision-making? Is it possible that the whole thing is a scam to keep the powerful in power and convince the public that the marketeers have far more control over us than they really do. We'll discuss disinformation in a way you have not heard before in a few minutes when we speak with writer Joseph Bernstein, author of the Harper's Magazine September cover story, Bad News, selling the story of disinformation. Joseph is a senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News and a 2021 Neiman Fellow. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Bernstein. Unbelievably, that was available. Find his writing at buzzfeed.com slash Joseph Bernstein. Thanks to Twitter follower Wisdom by Fred for suggesting Joe as a guest. Thanks, Wisdom by Fred. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Anything new by you, Richard? Oh, not much, but you know, Bernstein was taken on the... Yeah, exactly. See, it was already taken. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing well. Getting prepared for a little uh, uh, end of summer vacation with my family out on the uh, mid-Atlantic coast, just in time for Hurricane Harvey. Sweet, (laughs) sweet. So uh, where are you going? 
of Virginia Beach. Oh, that's a really good time of year to go to, you know, the rising shorelines and all that kind of exactly. stuff. That's really, really great. And, uh, take my raft. Exactly. Enjoy yourself. And please send me a soggy <laughs> fo- postcard, will you? Will do. Ta- toward the end of June and immediately after visiting family that includes little kids, I caught a cold. A really, really, really bad cold. So bad that I got a COVID test thinking I may have caught the virus. The test came back negative, or good, as the receptionist told me when she called. But the cold lingered. Every morning I would wake up and the first thing I would do is get in the shower and cough my lungs out for about 10 to 15 minutes. I would actually cough in unison with my next door neighbor who is always out on his back porch every morning. Smoking weed after working the third shift. But last week, after hosting this cold for over two months, it finally went away. Finally. Last week. A cold that had lingered since late June. Finally, no more respiratory issues. No no more lungs wheezing. No more coughing up God knows what. Then after a few days of being cold-free... I went to visit family again, as I did back in June, because I was the officiant at my niece's wedding. And at that wedding, there were more little kids. Kids who we found out after leaving the wedding had colds. Yes, I attended a wedding, a wedding I was told would only have vaxxed attendees in the middle of a pandemic. Somebody had the bright idea of bringing children who had colds and did not wear masks. And now I have another cold brought to you by kids. But this one is residing in my sinuses as opposed to my lungs. So I got that going for me, and I hope everybody forgives me for any sniffles I may have during the show. And yes, that will be the first and last time you've ever heard me use the word sniffles on air. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. <laughs> I love the qualifier of be honest. What were you going to do? Sorry, what were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. What were you going to be going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. See, this cold is killing me. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check on all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and click, clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for all of your support. Thanks to for showing their support goes out to Jennifer B., another listener to the show on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Jim V., thanks to you for your support. And thanks to Brett B. for your tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. Thanks, Jennifer, Jim, and Brett. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us or to me at chuck at thisishell.com but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner Richard will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Joe on disinformation we got an email from Teresita about our rescheduling of the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show This Is Hell being rescheduled until our 26th anniversary Next year, on July 23rd, 2022, Teresita writes, 
thank goodness. Thank you for postponing the anniversary party. 2022, I will and can be there. Thanks from the streets of Bork, B-O-R-Q-U-E, in parentheses, she writes Albuquerque, New Mexico. I did not know. Is also known as Bork. Maybe it's Borky. Many smiles, Teresita. We hope everyone can join us for what will be a blowout throwdown of a party next year. Make your plans now. To be honest, had we gone ahead with the party as originally scheduled this past July, or had we went forward with throwing the party this month when we had originally rescheduled the party, I seriously doubt many people would have shown up. And for me, that was the key deciding factor in rescheduling for next year. Not only did listeners, by a three-to-one count, support rescheduling for next year, most of them said they thought we should do so because there was no way they were coming to the party this year. And a party's not really a party if nobody shows up. When we were asking for listeners to send us their thoughts on if we should have the party or not, and thanks everyone for your advice and your support, it's truly appreciated. Mark wrote us to say that it was probably best that we do not throw the party. He told us how he had just thrown a bowling party, but everyone in attendance needed to be wearing masks and vaxxed and carrying proof of being vaxxed, as that would be logistically almost impossible for us, and we would need to have people at both the front and back doors throughout our party to be checking if people are vaxxed. We decided it was simply impossible to ensure that we could do everything we could to make certain everyone at the party was safe. However, it did lead me to ask, what's a bowling party and how can I be invited? Mark heard me say that and he writes, Hi Chuck, about my bowling party. It's my 50th birthday party this birthday this weekend and I'm having a birthday bowling bash at Avondale Bowl. I'm inviting you now at the last minute, and I wish I had invited you earlier. It's not just because you asked for an invite on the radio. It'll be uh, friends from high school and friends from our 25 years in Chicago just bowling and drinking. You and your girlfriend are very welcome to stop by, and I'll gladly buy you drinks. I'm only inviting vaxxed people, and the bowling alley requires proof of vaccination. Anyway, I think you're officiating a wedding this weekend, but if you're back in town by Sunday evening, I'd be happy to have you join us. Love and see you on the radio Mark. Thanks for the invite, Mark, but I didn't see it until after I got back from officiating my first wedding this weekend. But ever since I got Mark's email, all I can think about is how it's been years since I went bowling, and all I want to do is go bowling. I really want to go bowling. I didn't bowl, haven't bowled since like 2008. Suddenly, a couple of years of a pandemic, all of a sudden I want to go bowling. We also got an email from Mika, who writes... Have you done anything on modern monetary theory? I'm reading The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton now. I recommend it. Super easy read. Almost too much so. Like you and a bunch of your listeners, I would guess, I have been pretty obsessive about following the details of neoliberalism. And now all of a sudden it seems that at least on the kind of, say, intellectual history level, if not on the policy level, neoliberalism might just be gone. Poof. Done. It just might no longer be the orthodoxy. Chris Hayes jams this home regularly. That's why I don't watch Chris Hayes. He does a lot of jamming home. The Republican Party has pretty much given up on talking about austerity, responsible spending, and all the rest of that nonsense. Actually, if you watch Fox News, they're still on that nonsense. Was the pandemic spreading the somewhat successful example that the neoliberal right so rightly feared? Did we just demonstrate that it is perfectly fine for... 
peop- for a government to hand out dollars for actual people's actual good, Democrats, in quotes, like Robert Rubert and Steve Manchin, are still doing their thing, of course, but are they dinosaurs now? Has economic, political policymaking and even the World Bank or IMF reached a new orthodoxy where the harshest aspects of neoliberal capitalism are no longer gospel? And can we find somebody writing about this, if it is happening, that you can interview? Actually, Mika, we did have a general conversation on modern monetary theory back in April with economist James K. Galbraith when he returned to the show, this time to talk about a column he had just posted, Who's Afraid of MMT? Some people who were just being introduced to the topic, they liked the interview. On the other hand, those who are either opposed to MMT or are avid supporters, They were not as pleased with the discussion because James did not take one side or the other and instead simply explained that what it what, you know, MMT is as well as its advantages and its shortcomings. And you can find that interview with James by searching on his last name, Galbraith, at thisishell.com. Coming up, the disinformation around the disinformation debate. Richard will have all of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. What were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question now wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the tote bag, the t-shirt, the flash drive with our history of the 21st century and the first 20 years of it here on This Is Hell. You can find all that stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can uh, leave your uh, answer to this week's question mail again on our Facebook page. Tweet it to us, email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we announce this week's winner. Following our talk with Joe Bernstein on disinformation, Richard will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. What if the online disinformation scare we're going through right now what if it isn't all it's cracked up to be? Is it possible online disinformation isn't as influential as we've been convinced it is? Could it be that not only social media, but all of marketing and advertising is a lot less persuasive than we've been taught to believe by a media, academia, and business world that have serious conflicts of interest when determining how effective their marketing truly is? Here to help us have a better understanding of that hard-to-define thing we kind of know as disinformation. Writer Joseph Bernstein is author of the Harper's Magazine September cover story, Bad News Selling the Story of Disinformation. Welcome to This Is Hell, Joe. Great to be here. Sorry to hear about your cold. Yeah, and sorry about the delay there. I really appreciate your patience with us in our live stream. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, I graduated from Northwestern in 2007, so it's just an honor and a pleasure to be on WNUR. Oh, wow, great. Follow Joe on Twitter, at Bernstein, and find his writing at BuzzFeed.com slash Joseph Bernstein. Again, thanks to Twitter follower, at Wisdom by Fred, for suggesting Joe as a guest. Thanks, Wisdom by Fred. You write that in the beginning there were ABC, NBC, and CBS, and they were good. Mid-century American man could come home after eight hours of work and turn on his TV and know where he stood in relation to his wife and his children and his neighbors and his town and his country and his world, and that was good. Or he could open the local paper in the morning in the ritual fashion, taking his civic communion with his coffee and know that identical scenes were unfolding 
building in households across the country over frequencies. Our American never tuned into red baiting ultra right wing radio preachers hyperventilated to millions in magazines and books he didn't read. Elites fretted at great lengths about the dislocating effects of television. And for people who didn't look like him, the media had hardly anything to say at all. But our man lived in an Eden, not because it was unspoiled, but because he hadn't considered any other state of affairs. For him, information was in its right. That is to say, unquestioned place. And that was good, too. This is the same information seemed to be uh, the idea that the same information seemed to be accepted by all and anyone who did not believe in that information had little place to go, if anywhere, to find that information. To what extent was mid-century life censored? And not only by the government, but by the media and even by the public. Did the public simply dismiss what was not accepted by the establishment media as fact? To what extent did this public take its marching orders from establishment media in mid-century America? Well, um, I'm not a historian, and I was born in 1984. What I will say is that uh, the options for media were far, far fewer. You had the big three television networks, as I talked about in the excerpt from the piece you just read. Um, you had local newspapers, um, which largely concerned themselves with local affairs. Uh, and then for the people who consume this media, it was very easy to ignore because they didn't know uh, what was happening in the rest of the country. And they didn't know about other media networks uh, that basically had no crossover with this kind of dominant um, big three um, sort of media formation. So, you know, there was a, there was a group of um, extremely popular right-wing radio preachers um, who organized in pretty impressive kind of proto Rush Limbaugh and then sort of proto Trumpian ways, uh, their extremely far right listener listenership. Um, and, and the average guy who's just like watching, um, NBC after work would just have no sense that they even existed. Uh, there's also a great paper about, uh, black radio in the sixties and seventies and the role played in the civil rights movement. And, and again, I don't think the average kind of white dude, uh, uh, you know, w with his like TV dinner or whatever, um, whatever sort of stereotype we have about, you know, the working man in the, in the 60s, um, would just have any idea that this stuff existed. So, you know, the fact is, it's always been a big, weird, messed up country um, where people think really crazy stuff. And in, in many ways, it was just easier for kind of right thinking people not to know about that stuff. So how new is this misinformation and disinformation problem, apparently, that we have? Are we victimized any more or less today by misinformation and disinformation than we were in, say, mid-century America? Um, I can't answer that question in a quantitative way, and I don't really think anyone can. Um, there's two kind of models for the way information uh, or, or the way content on the Internet works. One is that it's a mirror of uh, sort of existing social issues and, 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 and um, social relations in society. The other is that it creates new ones by virtue of its form. I think the truth is it's somewhere in between uh, and that it does exacerbate existing problems, but it doesn't create problems, I think, out of whole cloth. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about um, what are uh, what seem to be scientific kind of categories like disinformation and misinformation. 
So uh, you also point out that in March, the Aspen Institute announced that it would convene an exquisitely nonpartisan commission on information disorder, which is a creepy title, co-chaired by Katie Couric, which would, quote, deliver recommendations for how the country can respond to this modern day crisis of faith in key institutions. The 15 commissioners include... Yasmin Green, the Director of Research and Development for Jigsaw, a technology incubator within Google that explores threats to open societies. Gary Kasparov, the chess champion and Kremlin critic. Alex Stamos, formerly Facebook's Chief Security Officer and now the Director of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Catherine Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's estranged daughter-in-law. And Prince Harry, Prince Charles's estranged son. By your estimation... How nonpartisan is that group of people? Do we know what that group of people view as a threat? Because they sound like a very rich and powerful and privileged group of people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to think about the people whose interests are represented in these anti-disinformation efforts. I mean, this one, we'll see what they deliver. Um, You know, I, I, I think, you know, Katie Couric, so like legacy, like, like, national media, uh, Yasmin Green, who is R&D for Google's tech incubator, um, Gary Kasparov, who sort of, you know, he's an open society kind of guy, Stamos, who used to work at Facebook, um, right? Catherine Murdoch, whose sort of claim to fame is um, pulling James Murdoch away from his dad after he lost the kind of succession battle, um, and <laughs> Prince Harry. So, you know, I mean, I, I, it's a, of course, this is a kind of group of establishment, high establishment figures, um, the kind of confluence of big tech money, um, literally uh, the, the, the British royal family and, um, you know, media, uh, media royalty. I mean, it's Catherine Murdoch. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's like cynical to think about what these people would view as information disorder. And you're right that the Commission on Information Disorder is the latest, and you point out most creepily named, addition to a new field of knowledge production that emerged during the Trump years at the juncture of media, academia, and policy research called Big Disinfo, a kind of EPA for content. It seeks to expose the spread of various sorts of toxicity on social media platforms, the downstream effects of the spread, and the platform's clumsy, dishonest, and half-hearted attempts to halt it. As an environmental cleanup project, it presumes a harm model of content consumption, just to say smoking causes cancer, consuming bad information must cause changes in belief or behavior that are bad by some standard. Otherwise, why care what people read and watch? Big Disinfo has found energetic support from the highest echelons of the American Political Center, which has been warning of an existential content crisis more or less constantly since the 2016 election of Donald Trump as president. In your opinion, is this more a project of fighting disinformation, or is it more about reinforcing a center that now appears more fragile than it was in mid-century America? I mean, I think both things can be true. Like the center can have its own vision or definition of what disinformation is. You know, one of the things I get into the article is that one of the biggest problems the center has right now is defining different disinformation consistently. Um, But back to your original question, um, you know, there's tons of bullshit online uh, and some of it is dangerous. I mean, I think some of the COVID, um, some of the propaganda about COVID and lies about COVID are like truly dangerous. but that 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 doesn't also mean that um, the sort of like failing institutions um, of of the center 
don't also have an interest in controlling the kind of information that people are exposed to. Uh, and you know, we shouldn't forget that um, sort of as the gatekeepers have lost their power, um, you know, not only has a lot of uh, information that um, you know, sort of liberals uh, really hate, like from the sort of political far right and from you know far right extremists, uh, kind of trickled or you know flowed through. So too has uh, ha have perspectives um, that were never represented in media and and not for a good reason. Um, meaning you know people of color and people. Um, sort of different subjectivities than you know white straight and male have also been allowed through, and I think that's a point that gets lost too when we talk about information, you know, sort of information disorder writ large. When you were mentioning COVID lies, how much do you think the misinformation or disinformation online on social media? How how do you think that that has affected the people who consume it? Is this does that kind of information uh, does it convert? the viewer into believing the COVID lies, or is it just confirmation bias? Is it is it more conversion, or is it just somebody seeking out uh, information that they agree with? Right. I mean, this is kind of the million-dollar question, um, and literally the million-dollar question when it comes to advertising, which I think is a useful way of thinking through uh, persuasion on social media. Um, whether or not information people are exposed to actually changes their mind or whether they've sought out and are sharing information that they already agree with. Um, I don't think there's like good empirical data on um, on whether exposure to COVID misinformation, um, you know, has sort of changed people's minds about the vaccine. I do think vaccine skepticism is a problem that existed long, long before social platforms, and that any attempt to address it is going to have to address cultural and not just technological factors. Uh, and again, I think that's something that gets lost when you have a purely sort of technological framework for thinking about um, for thinking about social problems. So what is the mistake that you think is made? Like, let's say, let's just uh, use this as an example. You have a very good friend or a family member who is somebody who is a COVID-19 anti-vaxxer denier, whatever you want to call them. And friends of yours, family members say it's all because of the misinformation that they are getting online. How would you respond to that? Um, I would ask if that's the only, I mean, that's a tricky question because I think, you know, different people respond differently. Um, I think it would depend on, um, like what that person's background is. I mean, there's lots of people who don't want to take a COVID, the COVID vaccine. There's lots of communities that are resistant to taking the COVID vaccine, uh, who are not right wing politically. Uh, and to the extent that like disinformation and misinformation have become a kind of, um, like binary political issue, um, I don't think it's a particularly useful way of thinking about those communities of people. Um, I think that uh, you know, at some at some level, the people who do the messaging, um, and, and you know, that kind of starts um, not with social media, but in many cases uh, with like you know higher sort of um, or or you know traditional mass media. I mean, Fox News. Um, you know, even there was a study late in, Trump, in President Trump's uh, term that, you know, sort of attempted to quantify what percentage of misinformation or disinformation broadly defined and, you know, using whatever idiosyncratic definition of those terms, the, um, the, the, the uh, researchers were using uh, found that 
Trump was responsible for some crazy percentage of lies on the internet. And at some point it's like, yeah, the internet like helps Trump get his message across. Social platforms help him get his message across well until they banned him anyway. Um, but also Trump is like a like raving, lying like asshole. And like he, you know, he 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 wasn't created by the internet. He was created long before he's created by the media long before the internet. And you write that compared with other more literally toxic corporate giants, those in the tech industry have been rather quick to concede the role they played in corrupting the allegedly pure stream of American reality. Denial was always untenable for Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, in particular. Zuckerberg's company profits by convincing advertisers that it can standardize its audience for commercial persuasion. How could it simultaneously claim that people aren't persuaded by its content? Ironically, it turned out that the big social media platforms shared a foundational premise with their strongest critics in the disinformation field, that platforms have a unique power to influence users in profound and measurable ways. Over the past five years, these critics helped shatter Silicon Valley's myth of civic benevolence while burnishing its image as the ultra-rational overseer of a consumerist future. So in this view, is social media bad for politics but great for consumerism? Does consumerism trump civic duty and civic society does it trump democracy in the united states well that's a that's a big question that's probably outside my um my wheelhouse um what i will say is that you know the kind of modern internet is built on the back of ad sales um we hear a lot about the ad duopoly the two companies that control the lion's share of ad money um on the american internet google and facebook and um, so their their sort of value proposition, as it were, to uh, marketers, to people with money to spend on ads, is that they can provide more persuasive ads um, than any form of media that, that came before. And so um, to the extent that social platforms promise like a new reality machine, a new um, a new way of seeing the world, uh, you know, for um, billions of, of people and, and millions and millions, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans, um, the fact that it's, it, it, it's contemporary iteration or it's, it's current iteration is um, sort of sold as the most effective commercial persuasion machine in human history. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think that means that, um, that, you know, selling people stuff is like the, the basic uh, function right now of, of the of the modern internet. And you mentioned the 1952 presidential campaign of Dwight Eisenhower and how Madison Avenue, how advertising firms were working hard to convince Republican donors, working hard to convince both political parties uh, that advertising was incredibly important and key to any electoral victory. How important is a media uh, presence to electoral victory? There, there's a huge industry around political marketing but how do we know how effective it is in getting voters out to the polls to support that marketed candidate? Uh, I mean, I think without offering a, you know, like a, a, a yes, no, um, the interests of the people who sell their ability to persuade um, are in selling the ability of themselves to persuade. In other words, um, you're not going to hear uh, from these, you know, supposedly empirical people, that their um, that their tools don't work uh, because they, uh, you know, they have a product to flog like everyone else. So, you know, there's this great Hannah Arendt quote um, 
that I have in there, uh, which she wrote in her famous essay, Lying in Politics, which is about the Pentagon Papers. Um, she wrote, the, the psychological premise of human manipulability has become one of the chief wares that are sold on the market of common and learned opinion. Um, so just to take the example of the 1952 presidential election, Eisenhower's uh, campaign essentially invents modern um, political spot ads. Um, but Eisenhower won 442 electoral votes. Uh, so he probably would have won this election um, convincingly, even if he hadn't spent any money on television at all. Uh, so, um, I, you know, I think uh, the, the right person to talk to here would be a political scientist or an economist um, in terms of, you know, this sort of actual measurement of the effect of political ads. But I think it's fair to say certainly that um, when it comes to advertising on the internet, um, it's, it's still sort of a subject of um, contention in the research about whether or not internet ads are fake news, more specifically. I mean, the kind of political disinformation that people get very hot and bothered about um, actually played like a definitive role um, in, in 2016. So, so who is determining the efficacy of uh, advertising, of marketing, of propaganda? Are the creators of the propaganda also the creators of the measurements that determine the, pro the propaganda's efficacy? Is there any, is there an, an inherent conflict of interest when it comes to political marketing and advertising and measuring how effective it is? I mean, yes, definitely. Um, I, my thinking on this comes significantly from a really interesting book by a technologist, kind of uh, intellectual of the tech world named Tim Wong. Um, he's a really, really, really smart guy. He knows a lot about the digital ad world. Um, he's currently the uh, general counsel at Substack, the, the subscription newsletter um, platform. Um, he wrote a book called Subprime Attention Crisis, and the, the, the thesis of the book is basically that um, the digital ad world is beset by fraud and like way less effective than the people who sell, um, you know, the people in the industry claim it is. Um, and so I think it's, a, it's just important to keep in mind that a lot of the like apparently empirical ways that people have of measuring ads, of measuring persuasion, are right, as you say, built by the people who want to sell the persuasive tools in the first place. Um, and so, you know, is that a conflict of interest? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, healthier to just think of it as like business people trying to sell their product. And if we can think about it that way, I think it leads to some like um, maybe clearer ideas about um, persuasion online. And you're right that luckily for the aspiring Cold War propagandists, the American ad industry had polished up a pitch. It had spent the first half of the century trying to substantiate its worth through association with the burgeoning fields of scientific management and laboratory psychology, cultivating behavioral scientists and appropriating their jargon, writes the economist Zoe Sherman, allowed ad sellers to offer a veneer of scientific certainty to the art of persuasion. And then you quote Sherman writing, they asserted that audiences, like the workers in a tailorized workplace, need not be persuaded through reason, but could be trained through repetition to adopt the new consumption habits desired by the sellers. So did the center, if you will, purposely target us with disinformation? And is that now blowing up in the establishment's face with disinformation increasingly being believed? Oh, um, uh, I, sorry, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Did the American political center, like during the Cold War, target its own people with disinformation? I mean, that depends on your perspective. And one of my points in the piece is that 
um, labeling things propaganda or disinformation is almost always a political act. So, you know, yeah, if you, <laughs> if you were, um, if you were like, a um, you know, a giant in the wall communist, uh, in the, in, you know, American communist in the 1950s or sixties, you would absolutely think that the American center was targeting you with this information. Um, do I think there was like some overarching plot to disinform the American public by mass media? I, you know, I don't know. And I don't, that's sort of not, it's really beyond the scope of what I'm saying in the piece. Um, certainly, um, the kind of confluence of um, academic research, um, early media scholarship, um, the ad industry, uh, and and politics is something that we should, you know, that kind of alliance is something to keep in mind when we think about the way that um, persuasion works or is theorized to work um, online. And you point out that today an even greater aura of omnipotence surrounds the digital ad maker than did his print and broadcast forebears, according to the person you were mentioning earlier, Tim Wong, a lawyer who formerly led public policy at Google. This image is maintained by two pillars of faith, that digital ads are both more measurable and more effective than other forms of commercial persuasion. The asset that structures digital advertising is attention. But Wong argues in his 2020 book, Subprime Attention Crisis, Attention is harder to standardize and thus worth much less as a commodity than the people buying it seem to think. If that is the case, to you, what explains why advertising is not valued correctly? Why have the buyers of advertising not recognized that they overvalue advertising and attention? Um, I think there, there, you know, there are hundreds of, I mean, I think almost half of the Fortune 500, for example, doesn't spend money on television ads. I don't think it's a settled thing, like in, in you know, in sort of um, in corporations that advertising just works across the board. Um, I think that, uh, you know, some of it is um, inertia. I mean, there's always been like enormous ad budgets and, you know, there's people whose jobs depend on having, you know, money to spend on 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 ad buys, and then there's people whose jobs depend on um, having ad space to sell. And there's a whole world. I mean, there's a whole universe of people in between, you know, those two, you know, the that that money um, changing hands, especially now on the internet. So um, I don't want to say it's a it, it's not it's not a crime. Um, I don't want to say it's a it's 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 um, malicious per se it's just it's it, it's a lot of interest that sort of uh align around the same thing which is the fundamental kind of belief that advertising works and you point out that an illusion of greater transparency offered to ad buyers hides a deeper opaque marketplace automated and packaged in unseen ways and dominated by two grimly secretive companies facebook and google with every interest in making attention seem as uniform as possible this is perhaps the deepest criticism one can make of these Silicon Valley giants, not that their gleaming industrial information process creates nasty runoff, but that nothing all that valuable is coming out of the factory in the first place. If nothing all that valuable is coming out of the factory in the first place, then why do so many people use the social media marketplace? Can something with so many users not be doing something valuable? Well, they're certainly collecting data on a lot of people. Uh, and I, I don't mean to imply that people don't find uses for Facebook and obviously Google. Um, that's not my point really um, at all. Um, what I am saying is that the, the way that they've become massively profitable um, may not 
may not sort of stand up to scrutiny. Uh, you know, they've become profitable by inserting themselves into uh, the, the ad industry. Uh, and, you know, that is a, um, and not just by inserting themselves in the ad industry, but by saying we can standardize it, we can make it more empirically sound. And um, I think that's important. Again, it's, it's just something that's, you know, important to keep in mind that the, the sort of, um, the 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 uh, the value of these companies is based on something that everyone sort of has to agree to believe is true. Um, that may or may not be true. And you mentioned that in recently unsealed court documents, Facebook managers disparaged the quality of their own ad targeting for just that reason. An internal Facebook email shows that COO Sheryl Sandberg knew for years that the company was overstating the reach of its ads. Is it possible to have oversight over advertisers' claims as to the efficacy of their product? Yeah, um, this is uh, this is something that Wong goes into in his book. Um, I think there are efforts uh, by um, by the ad industry and um, you know, sort of by good business, you know, better business groups to kind of um, to kind of put more oversight over the ad industry. I'm not expert on it. Um, but you know, whether or not you can ever have, um, whether or not you can ever have ads that sort of like perfectly, um, or, or a infrastructure of thinking about ads that kind of like perfectly, um, model the human mind or like what makes people tick. Um, I think that's the sort of deeper question. And I don't, you know, I don't think that, that that's ever been established. I want to talk about the uh, a hero and a villain that you see in this story. We are speaking with writer Joseph Bernstein. He is the author of the Harper's Magazine's September cover story, Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. You can follow Joe on Twitter, at Bernstein, and you can find his writing at buzzfeed.com slash Joseph Bernstein. You write the myths of the digital advertising industry have played a defining role in the way the critics of big tech tell the story of political persuasion. That's because paid political content is the kind of digital myths and disinformation with the highest profile, the nefarious influence that liberal observers across the West blame for Brexit and Trump. Like any really compelling narrative, this one has good guys and bad guys. The heroes in the disinformation drama are people like Christopher Wiley, who blew the whistle on the black magic of Cambridge Analytica, then asked the world to buy his book. How do you view Wiley as a hero? Why is he a hero? Uh, well, I don't personally view Wiley as a hero. Um, the the what I'm saying in 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 the um, in the piece is that the sort of story of disinformation uh, is actually less of a, in many ways, less of an empirical analysis of the situation or a, a, even a material analysis of the situation. And it's actually kind of a, a classic um, good guy, bad guy story. Um, and the stories sort of, um, you know, first heroes were the people who claimed, you know, that the like mind of the West was being hacked by evil disinfo. And to that extent, the sort of whistleblowers on Cambridge Analytica, which is the company that really shapes, kind of shapes our understanding of, um, of, of political advertising on the internet and it, you know, potentially negative things about it. Um, uh, it you know, these people sort of get, um, get uh, established in the press as, as heroic. 
point to the villain, you write the villains are people like Brad Parscale, the flamboyant strategist who was the digital director of Trump's successful 2016 campaign. Parscale was bumped up to campaign manager for the re-election bid, sensing that this man was the secret architect of Trump's supposed digital dominance. The press turned him into a Sith Lord of right-wing persuasion, a master of the misinformation force. Is it in the media's own best self-interest to promote the idea that campaign managers are very influential masters of persuasion? Because former campaign managers seem to pop up in their supposedly post-political lives as news commentator and anal- commentators and analysts all the time. So is shaping Pascal, Pascal as this uh, villain, is that in the media's own best self-interest? Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a good point, which is that it's not uncommon to frame um, successful campaign managers after the fact. Well, I should say, Parscale was never a successful campaign manager. He was a successful digital director in 2016. But um, more broadly, it is a common uh, story to write after the fact that the campaign manager uh, is, you know, kind of a secret political genius, which he may or may not, he or she may or may not be. You know, from James Carville um, to like Pete Axelrod, Karl Rove. Um, so these, you know, these people always occupy a place in the cultural imagination. What was different about Parscale is that he was in charge of Trump's Facebook operation, um, which got a lot of credit for Trump's victory in 2016. And so, um, the media did, you know, of which I'm a part, um, I think play up Parscale as a kind of, um, you know, swami of the internet who kind of understood how to, um, how to target people. Um, had a sort of empirically, but also like like shadily quiet uh, tar- target people um, uh, to, to, to persuade them to vote for Trump. You point out that misinformation and disinformation are used casually and interchangeably to refer to an enormous range of content ranging from well-worn scams to viral news aggregation from foreign intelligence operations to trolling from opposition research to harassment. In their crudest use, the the terms are simply jargon for things I disagree with. So we don't really have definitions for misinformation or disinformation, but to what extent are mis- and disinformation campaigns purposeful attempts at getting the audience to believe a knowingly false message? Aren't mis- and disinformation campaigns intentional strategies at undermining the truth and creating belief in a lie? Um. That's a it's a complicated question with a with a very long answer. Um, <laughs> the the uh, disinformation originally comes from a kind of uh, like Soviet version of of the English word. Um, so disinformatsaya was in the Great uh, Soviet Dictionary, I think, in nineteen fifty five. Um, if you give me a minute to look in the piece, um, it's defined as. Um, It's defined as dissemination in the press of false reports intended to mislead public opinion. The capitalist press and radio make wide use of desinformatia. So um, it has this Cold War meaning um, that's, to me, basically indistinguishable from um, propaganda, offensive propaganda. Um, I think the most broadly accepted definitions of these terms hold disinformation as like the intentional attempt to mislead. Again, these are very often political or value judgments. What is misleading someone? I mean, for example, um, you know, there's been reporting about Russia targeting like um, African-American voters 
um, with information about how the Democratic Party, you know, was like tough on crime in the early 90s. Um, you know, does it make it worse that it's Russians doing this in an attempt to like divide the American electorate? I guess that depends on your perspective. Um, misinformation tends to be um, poorly contextualized information, information that's spread falsely without a uh, without a um, malign motive. Um, and so I think that's m much more common. Um, and I think it's it's often it's kind of safer than saying that something is is maliciously spread or spread um, like it's like knowingly false things that it, first of all, it's very hard to prove someone's state of mind that they, you know, this is one of the reason why American libel law is good because it's hard to prove actual malice. Um, it's hard to say that someone knowingly did something false, um, you know, to catch someone red-handed. Um, so yes, the definitions are are not are not consistent, are not good, um, and uh, that, yeah, that poses a that poses a pretty big problem. I think we can still talk about propaganda. I think we can still talk about disinformation and misinformation. I just want to see the terms clarified. Um, and I also want to see an acknowledgement that um, the world is not necessarily as simple as the information to which people are exposed to the media. And I think that's a danger in this conversation. You ask, is social media creating new types of people or simply revealing long obscured types of people to a segment of the public unaccustomed to seeing them? The latter possibility has embarrassing implications for the media and academia alike. If social media is simply revealing long obscured types of people to a segment, of the public unaccustomed to seeing them. What are those embarrassing implications for academia and media alike? Why were these people long obscured by media and academia? I mean, this is like the great question of 2016. And it's why, you know, you have all these kind of embarrassing post facto attempts to like find uh, Trump voters in diners in like exurban or rural Pennsylvania or Ohio or um, you know, whichever purple state you want to bring up. Um, it's the idea that the media missed this group of people uh, or, you know, the, the knowledge industries, the industries that are supposed to explain the world um, to the people who live in it um, actually weren't paying attention. Um, weren't paying attention, not just to like Trump voters, but also again, to like, you know, huge underrepresented populations um, of people. And, you know, we see this all the time. I mean, there's this, uh, there is this great story in the Times after um, the 2020 election where Trump outperforms expectations of um, Hispanic voters um, about um, Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande, Grande Valley in Texas and why they, why they went for Trump. And, you know, the kind of like armchair analysis you see, um, uh, and I want to give the Times credit because that was a great story. I think it was in the Times. Um, the kind of armchair analysis you see sometimes that just like explains away the the way people behave, either based on stereotypes, past you know kind of cliches, or um, or just like not knowing um, is is greater than I think we than we realize. Um, and so there's some, you know. Uh, there, there's some, of course, there's reticence in industries that are supposed to know to admit what they don't know. Um, but I think it would be very helpful to start by, by acknowledging the things that we don't know. And that, that's sort of a broader through line in this in this piece.
And you write that a quick scan of the institutions that publish most frequently and influentially about disinformation, Harvard University, the New York Times, Stanford University, MIT, NBC, the Atlantic Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, etc., that the most prestigious uh, liberal institutions of the pre-digital age are the most interested or invested in fighting disinformation reveals a lot about what they stand to lose or hope to regain. So in your opinion, is the war against disinformation a war by old platforms against new platforms for dominance and power of the narrative? You know, again, I don't think it's that clean. Um, I think a lot of the people who do this research are like incredibly talented and have exposed really interesting things about um, how uh, powerful interests try to use social media to influence people. Um, and I, I think what, what's, what sometimes gets lost is that appearances are very important. And so when you have these sort of um, huge, well-funded, like, traditional institutions who are leading the charge to label things as um, verboten or acceptable information, that even the appearance of that is can be untoward. Um, and you know, again, I don't necessarily think there is like a shadowy meeting of, you know, the head of the Brookings Institution, the, the Brookings Institute, um, the New York Times, like Harvard University, um, to say like, yes, we need to label all the things we don't like disinformation. Um, but given, um, given, you know, the sort of historical weaknesses of these places, um, as gatekeepers, um, I don't mean, and when I say weakness, I mean, they've been very effective gatekeepers prior to the internet. Um, I think that appearance is actually very important. Um, and a sort of a self-awareness, um, is important too, when we talk about what information is, is labeled acceptable and what information is labeled as, as unacceptable. And you mentioned a February New York Times article humbly suggested the appointment of a reality czar who could, quote, become the tip of the spear for the federal government's response to the reality crisis. Right. If there were I mean, a reality czar, that would suggest that whichever party is in power would suddenly have partisan political officials determining what is and what is not reality. How much of a threat to our understanding of reality could a reality czar be? I mean, I think the issue with a lot of this stuff is just like the reporters, you know, and I've I've worked in this area. The reporters and researchers have their own vocabulary. Um, they spend so much time looking at absolutely disturbing bullshit on the Internet um, that the appeal of someone who can kind of like sit on top and say, yes, no, yes, no, is is obvious. The downsides um, are 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 less obvious because we don't have it. Um and I also think it's because of that sort of like constant exposure to, to crap information um, that there's a language that's developed that I don't even think the people who use it are aware of like how it sounds. Um, and so I actually felt a little bad choosing that example in like the Commission on Information Disorder, because I, I think in the context of people thinking hard about how to solve difficult problems um, about, about information dissemination on a basically scale that humans have never dealt with before. Um, it, it is scary. It poses new challenges. Um, and so the language that's used is, is extremely, can be extremely hyperbolic, like realities are, or, or, you know, commission on information disorder can sound Orwellian, even when it's not the intention of the people proposing these things to be, in fact, it's the furthest thing. I mean, they see themselves, I think in many ways, as sort of like guardians of a liberal truth. So it's difficult. And, and, and I don't want to call any like individual people um, I think it, it's important to bear in mind um, the like role 
um, that these people have traditionally played, uh, and also, you know, the way this language can sometimes sound. I mean, shock. It, like, I, you know, if I hadn't been if I hadn't spent a year away from my job, I don't know that I would have looked at that phrase and like done the double take that I did. Um, but right, realities are it's it's just a crazy thing to say. And you also point out that legacy outlets with usefully prestigious uh, brands are taken on board with places like Facebook as trusted partners to determine when the levels of contamination in the information ecosystem from which they have magically detached themselves get too high. For the old media institutions, it's a bid for relevance, a form of self-preservation. For the tech platforms, it's a superficial strategy to avoid deeper questions. A trusted disinformation field is, in this sense, a very useful thing for Mark Zuckerberg. So what are those deeper questions that are being avoided and that you would like to have pursued? Well, whether or not uh, Facebook's sort of basic value proposition as an ad seller is is valid, like whether they can actually convince people of things. So if like the greatest criticism of Facebook is that they're convincing people of things too effectively, um, I don't think that's a very damaging, ultimately, criticism of Facebook. I think um, to go back to the earlier thing about um, maybe the sort of info industrial uh, sort of products are not actually all that valuable. To me, that's a much more damaging criticism of company that to me really deserves it then um, you're too good at doing what you're doing. And you write that sociologist Jacques Ellul wrote of the necessary role of what he called pre-propaganda. You then quote Ellul writing, direct propaganda aimed at modifying opinions and attitudes must be preceded by propaganda that is sociological in character, slow, general, seeking to create a climate and atmosphere of favorable preliminary attitudes. No direct propaganda can be effective without pre-propaganda, which without direct or noticeable aggression is limited to creating ambiguities, reducing prejudices, and spreading images apparently without purpose. Is direct propaganda always an effect of this pre-propaganda? If, if there are those, because this, this is why I'm asking, if there are those who are concerned about propaganda, should they be focusing on pre-propaganda that makes us vulnerable to the direct propaganda? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of one of the places I land in the piece is that um, the whole kind of cultural context um, is is way more important in whether or not you believe something than any individual message. Um, and so, you know, I kind of give this dramatic laundry list of the problems in America right after that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's brutal racism, it's brutal kind of class uh, struggle, um, you know, it's a, a sort of deeply irresponsible broadcast media, it's extremely violent entertainment industry. I mean, there's lots of problems. Um, in the United States uh, that I think set the stage um, and that need equal, you know, they need to be acknowledged along with the information people are exposed to, um, you know, what kind of, what kind of person responds to a Facebook message, assuming even that someone can be persuaded to take, you know, horse dewormer for COVID, uh, like, like, and and they aren't just sort of already someone who's interested in quack cures. Um, what kind of life has that person had? What have they been exposed to? Um, you know, before they they read the post on Facebook, um, we're not automata, uh, and, and I think that's important to keep in mind um, that the circumstances play just a huge huge role um, in why people's lives turn out the way they do and why they make the decisions they do. And uh, you know, I just like to see more of that more. Um, 
or context when we talk about propaganda and, and disinformation. And there was an article in the Times this week about Accenture employees who are going through all of those social media posts and how their life has become miserable and how they don't want to do the job anymore. So it was a really fascinating article in the Times this week about that as well. So are the myths of American exceptionalism and innocence the context upon which all of our propaganda is founded today? Do Does our belief in myths, and in particular those myths, create a fertile environment for all disinformation? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I think that's, you know, the kind of idea of American exceptionalism is table stakes for most people who grow, who are born and raised in the, in the U.S. Um, I mean, that's baked into everything about the country. Uh, certainly it sets the stage for, you know, the make the MAGA propaganda, um, you know, but it also sets the stage for a lot of like liberal foreign policy propaganda, um, you know, that we've seen along with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, how can the kind of, you know, that, I mean, this is an outdated narrative now, but you know, the world's policemen, you know, all this kind of stuff, um, you know, we're sort of different and better, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is like the one of the core, you know, myths. And I don't even mean that in a disparaging way. It's just like one of the animating principles of American life. And so, yes, I mean, I think that is a that is a predisposition that um, sets the stage for uh, certain kinds of messaging to be effective. Just a couple more questions for you. You write to take the whole environment into view, or as much of it as we can. Is it is to see how preposterously insufficient it is to blame these social media platforms for the sad extremities of our national life, up to and including the riot on January 6th? And yet, given the technological determinism of the disinformation discourse, is it any surprise that attorneys for some of the Capitol rioters are planning legal defenses that blame social media companies? Does that technological determinism of the disinformation discourse obfuscate the larger systems that may be playing a role like consumerism, neoliberalism, capitalism more generally? Does the technological fix to any information problem alleviate holding the larger system as a whole accountable? Because that sounds like the kind of technological determinism that guides the thinking of many when it comes to climate change, that some sort of new tech will save the day, which uh, tech that we don't have yet. And somehow we're going to change our constant ways of economic growth and globalization and all of the problems that actually contribute to climate change. So is, is, is this another case of hoping that tech will save us? I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer is that, um, you know, like, um, I mean, the climate change example is interesting, but, you know, one of the arguments that, say, Facebook will make is that we're so huge and there's so much content on our site um, and we've created such an enormous kind of universe of things to police that we're the only people who are big enough to, to, to police it. Um, and so, you know, you not only need, <laughs> you not only need, uh, to solve, you know, we, okay, maybe we've created a problem, but, um, we're the only people who have the power to solve the problem, which, which, you know, is, is tech law. I mean, it, as you're saying, it's just kind of consumerist tech logic, um, in, in, in a, in a kind of a neat, neat package. One last question for you, Joe. We've been speaking with writer Joseph Bernstein, author of the Harper's Magazine September cover story, Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. Joe is a senior technology writer at BuzzFeed News and a 2021 Neiman Fellow. You can follow him on Twitter at Bernstein. Find his writing 
at BuzzFeed.com slash Joseph Bernstein. Thanks to Twitter follower at Wisdom by Fred for suggesting Joe as a guest. One last question for you, Joseph, and our final question for each and every one of our guests, we promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our oh, no. audience is going to hate your response. This one's an easy Oh, no. This is easy. This is easy. Okay. You write, there is a deeper and related reason many critics of big tech are so quick to accept the technologist story about human persuadability. As the political scientist Yaron Azrahi has noted, the public relies on scientific and technological demonstrations of political cause and effect because they sustain our belief in the rationality of democratic government. How do you see democratic government as it exists today in the United States as not acting in a way that can necessarily be considered rational? Well, we stayed in Afghanistan for 20 years. That's my, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, not very, not very rational. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it, um, but I, I do have to run. All right, Joe, take care. And uh, thanks for, uh, and have a great weekend. Okay, guys. Thanks so much. I really, I, it was a pleasure. Take care. Okay, bye. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell if that conversation with Joe Bernstein on disinformation and social media media made you mad or sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have had, or made you feel more educated to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to tomorrow or to Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell which streams live Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and this podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On Patreon this Friday, because we spoke with writer Bree Busk, she returned to the show to talk about her article at Roar Magazine on the Constitutional Convention taking place in Chile, we thought it would be a good time to go back to the final days of the dictator Augusto Pinochet, who was a fugitive on the lam, trying to avoid a ruling that he be indicted on allegations of human rights violations that took place during the time of his dictatorship. Everything about the brutality of Pinochet's regime, including CIA and U.S. support directed by Henry Kissinger, who it turns out is freaking evil, was revealed by the guest we had on back in 2005. So we'll be playing a conversation from the year prior to Pinochet's death, conversation from March 2005, with Peter Kornbluh, the author of The Pinochet File, and he is also the director of the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project. Peter led the campaign to declassify official documentation of the secret history of the U.S. government support for the Pinochet dictatorship. That campaign led to revelations of U.S. complicity. Not that it was being reported widely in the U.S. media back in 2005 when all of this came to light. Everywhere else in the world, sure. But the U.S. media is not about reporting on the history of U.S. imperialism overthrowing elected democracies and replacing them with a junta. And definitely not one that that overthrow happened on 9-11, 1971. And during my monologue on Patreon Friday, I'll be branding myself, or more accurately doing my best to de-brand, to unbrand myself, to demarketize who or what I am, whatever that is, because it, it seems everyone is turning themselves into an advertisement for a product we call ourselves, so we can be 
commodified, sold, and earn what we refer to as a living. But to me, it all seems like a killing of who we are and the birth of what we can be sold as on the market, and that's very disturbing. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to the weekly This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast shortly after at the same place in that place again is patreon.com slash this is hell this week's question from hell is what were you going to do with all your surplus value be honest what were you going to do with all of your surplus value be honest the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of this is hell merchandise you can leave your answer to this is uh this week's question from hell at our facebook page tweet it to us or email it to us but you got to send it in right now because richard Please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Yes, Zach N. is using his surplus value to tell the youngsters to get off his lawn. (laughs) I like that. Barrett M. is going to Jack in the Box (laughs) twice and getting extra Jack sauce. Oh, that's disgusting. And uh, also, when was the last time you talked to a clown head to get your food there, Richard? (laughs) Has it been a while? Well, let's see. When was... uh, No, it's been a long time. I know. I was going to say, the last time was when I was in San Francisco, I think in 1990, and I was disturbed by the fact that there was still a Jack in the Box. What are you going to do with all your surplus value? Bradley R. is going to buy bigger bootstraps. <laughs> you notice you can't really lift yourself up by your bootstraps. You exactly. It's a paradox. <laughs> it is a paradox. It's more than one dox. It's a pair of them. <laughs> Nicholas E. is using his surplus value to stop selling my labor power. Also, introducing its opposite, sub-minus. <laughs> Jack B. is going to pay off his credit card debt. Ronaldo is using his surplus value for groceries. That's a good thing. Food? Yeah, sure. Kim G. is going to chew a gumball. All right. All right. (laughs) I love her answers. (laughs) George P. is going to invest heavily in the equine pharmaceutical complex. I think you might be late on that. I mean, if you really wanted to get that Missed the curve. I think so, too. What are you going to do with your surplus value? Pete, or sorry. Well, Pete, our Pete answers, Aldi's is having a sale on ground turkey. (laughs) I like how he calls it Aldi's. Like the jewel in Michigan is Myers when it's Meyer, or I work at Ford's. I work at Ford's. Aldi's? How would you not? How would you pronounce it? Isn't it just Aldi? Well, Aldi... I guess, but it, all these. I just love yeah. when people okay, I get throw it. the possessive on. <clears throat> yes. Mike S. answers, get my name on big buildings. <laughs> David Z. answers, think I'll buy me a football team. <laughs> and what are you going to do with your surplus value? Marco answers, he's using, he's going to get a house without stupid neighbors. <laughs> That's really nice. <laughs> Brandon S. is buy private property and appropriate the surplus value of others. No, I'd buy a PS5. (laughs) Elsa N. answers, start a union. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) What are you going to do with your surplus value? David I. answers, pull it with surplus value of everyone else in my syndicate and fund our health care and pension and maybe buy a ping pong table for the break room. Sweet, ping pong table. Nyson 
R answers, if you ask the richest institutions on the planet, the answer is to keep erecting gorgeous, shiny, tall, useless temples, grand mosques and mega churches where the poor are welcome to pray for food and shelter. (laughs) What are you going to do with your surplus value? Drifa J answers, what was I going to do with all my surplus value? Start the trans girl cat pile commune. Already in progress. You should see my living room sometimes. (laughs) I should see. Why not share images? I would like to see that. Yay Hoke answers, exchanging it for 20 yards of linen or maybe a new coat. Okay. And the hypocrite reader is going to use it tithing. (laughs) Ah, tithing. That's what they're going to do with their surplus value. Good idea. What are you going to do with your surplus value? Bob J answers by a monocle and a top hat. (laughs) He should also get a bag with a dollar sign on it while he's at it. (laughs) Aaron B is using it for porn. (laughs) Kelly H is using it to service my debt. But she wanted me to pronounce it like my <laughs> Wojak is going to use the surplus value to buy up all the MREs at the at the Army Navy surplus store. I see and more I believe, surplus, surplus to surplus. I believe that is the end. Oh, hold on. Do I have one more? Mike M is going to use the surplus value to, to invent N95 with built-in DMT vape. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So, let's see. The answer to I, the answers I like the most were I did like Bob saying buy a monocle and a top hat. It's just that you should have added sacks with dollar signs on it as well. Hypocrite readers saying uh, they're going to use their surplus value to tithe. I certainly hope that tithing has to do with something you'll be doing at thisishell.com when you click on support. David saying, pool it with the surplus value of everyone else in my syndicate and fund our health care and pensions and maybe buy a ping pong table for the break room, except i really anti-ping pong. Uh, Braden saying, buy private property and appropriate the surplus value of others. Nah, I'd buy a PS5. That's pretty damn good, Braden. Pete saying, Aldi's is having a sale on ground turkey. I do like that, except for the possessive on Aldi. George saying, invest heavily in the equine pharmaceutical complex, which would have been a great idea two weeks ago. But we didn't ask the question two weeks ago. Ronaldo saying, groceries. Bradley R. saying, buy bigger bootstraps with a question mark. I like the question mark added. And buying bigger bootstraps is about what you should be doing with your surplus value. But I think Bradley's won recently. I just don't want to give it to somebody who's recently won, but I also don't want to exclude them for giving us a really good answer. And Fabio saying, hire other people at a reduced wage to do my work and live off their surplus. Oh, wait. Crap. So, that makes this week's winner. I gotta... I'm gonna go with Bradley R. again. I'm sorry. Bradley R., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. You can get whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Just send us your mailing address and what piece of merchandise you want, and we'll get it in the mail to you ASAP. Mika, I just want you to know that your uh, award for winning, your prize for winning, is now in the mail as well. My answer to this week's question from hell. What were you going to do with all your surplus value, be honest? Well, I I was going to buy Bitcoin because it seems like the most 
sensible thing to do, right? Not at today's prices. <laughs> Why? Do you have money invested in Bitcoin? I no, hate to No, but ask. it's like $60,000 or something. Sweet. Sweet. It's crazy. I know. I heard some, uh, somebody was described yesterday as a Bitcoin millionaire, and I just want to see if that's an actual thing because I'm still not convinced any of that is real money, even though El Salvador is going to be having it as their currency, I guess, and Guatemala is thinking of the same thing. Good Lord. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. You can email us, of course. You can message us via Facebook. You can direct message us on Twitter. Or you can just send us actual stuff in the actual mail, too. This is hell. 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's this is hell. 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Yesterday, I told you how on the day we announced that we would be rescheduling this month's This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, This Is Art, how on the day we made that announcement, we received in the mail our first piece of art for the show, a butt demon skateboard by Seattle artist Brian Rindell, as inspired by the late, great Wesley Willis, whose closing remarks end each and every episode of This Is Hell. Now that we have rescheduled the party for July 23rd, 2022, meaning our 25th anniversary party will not happen until our 26th anniversary, suddenly more art is arriving. Back in the middle of July, I mentioned on the show how I was having trouble sleeping. That complaint led to the good folks at Wild Folk Farms of Benton, Maine, to contact me again. Wild Folk is one of Maine's first organic farmers and gardeners association certified cbd hemp producer and the home of the main rice project which is fascinating and you can find out more about them at wildfolkfarm.com so david uh, from wild folk farm emailed me and he writes uh, chuck how art thou heard from a recent episode that your sleep has been less than bountiful how is your cbd supply also i'd like to send you one of our ultra complex political posters we made during our days as the beehive design collective if you are familiar so no i, I was not that familiar i mean I, i'd heard about the beehive design collective from activists I know, but just in passing, you know, I didn't really know much about them. Apparently, the Beehive Design Collective is, or was, according to Wikipedia, a volunteer-driven nonprofit art collective that uses graphical media as educational tools to communicate stories of resistance to corporate globalization. However, at the Station Museum website, where it looks like the Beehive Design Collective had their art showing, it describes the collective a bit more colorfully. The Beehive Design Collective is a wildly motivated, all-volunteer, activist arts collective dedicated to cross-pollinating the grassroots by creating collaborative, anti-copyright images for use as educational and organizing tools. We work as word-to-image translators of complex global stories shared with us through conversations with affected communities. David sent a follow-up email writing, I'm also really excited to send you the book I just finished the layout designed for in tandem with a badass host of amazing climate uh, activists, analysts, and scientists and a coordinated international artist crew. 
It's a reprise of a 2009 book, Hoodwinked in the Hot House, my old collective rising tide North America put together, all about confronting false solutions to climate change, carbon capture and storage, nuclear, biomass, etc., etc. I have should have one in the mail from the printers any day now, and I'll send you a handful to you. See the teaser site for Hoodwinked in the Hot House, third edition, at climatefalsesolutions.org. David continues, oh, and I realized the Beehive poster I was asking about sending you would be great for purposes of your art event, which at the time was scheduled for September, but is now not until next year. So he writes, here's an example of what they look like digitally and in our oversized teaching formats. The one I'll send you is five to six feet wide. I'll actually send you send you two so you don't have to part with one if you think you may have the wall space to accommodate it. They come with detailed multilingual narratives that break down how the story was created, all the community groups and orgs we listen to, and to decode visual metaphors, etc. Bam! Keep up the good work. David then attached two images. One is of the mural Mesoamerica Resist, which is used as a teaching tool to guide the audience through the history of resistance to colonialism. The other image is a photo of a member of the collective in front of a class actually standing on this huge mural teaching history, like guiding the students through the mural. David emailed again telling us, I'll send you one of each, the true cost of coal, that's one of the pieces, and the 10-year-long opus of Mesoamerica Resist, that's the one where they were actually walking on it, before the core of our collective group sort of crumbled. Now there's us solo bees continuing the cross-pollination of the grassroots with presentations and popular education workshops based on these collaboratively made materials. Can't wait to get hoodwinked in the house into your hands. Its printing was unfortunately delayed for a spell, but we have our sights set for it to be a real force for narrative change and defining what time it is in a somewhat biopic and muddled realm of climate where far too often exploitative schemes masquerade as real change while whole continuing to prop up, while continuing to prop up the, the carbon quo carbon status quo between the bad math of carbon offsets and the grim portents of pie-in-the-sky geoengineering. Capitalism is inherently geared to encourage anything but conversations about real solutions and less consumption. Again, you can find a PDF of it at climatefalsesolutions.org. And David adds, thanks for helping amplify and for all you do. Your show, especially the one on individual versus collective freedoms, was fantastic. And really resonated with me as an immunocompromised person trying to navigate the implications of COVID-19 with my own mobility constrained by those who don't want to take it seriously in the first place, much less conceive of the ramifications of having a condition which puts many of us at severely heightened risk. Risk. The art should be arriving any day now. I had to send the posters and booklets separately. Holler at me post haste if you don't receive the poster tube, as I want to ensure you have some of these mammoth educational visuals in time for the perspective possible this is how I'll get together. You're awesome. Stay safe, David. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Your uh, The tube arrived yesterday. Uh, and I'm sure that that's what it was, as we received a very heavy package, a tube with art and sign that inside that has Wild Folk Farm as the return address. I can't imagine what else that it could be. However, I have not opened it up yet because my place, my home, it's simply not big enough to lay out this massive piece of art, even though it's been shrunk down to only a, 
five or six feet wide version. When we get the mural or murals over here at the studio and laid out in the art gallery, we'll post images online, so be looking for that. I just love that as soon as we announce that we are not having our anniversary party, suddenly on that day, we start receiving art for the party, and then we get even more just a few days later. If you want to send us anything in the mail, address it to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Richard, do we have anyone scheduled for next week's set of shows? Yes, we do, sir, but just a little Bitcoin update. Yes. One Bitcoin is worth $46,000. Oh, it's crashing. It's crashing. It's crashing. It was a high earlier this week of like 52000 So Yeah, that seems stable. That's a very stable investment. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's an investment, not a currency. I see. Yeah, so on Monday... (laughs) Stop blowing my mind. On Monday, we have Susan Schneider on her book, The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism. That sounds like fun. Tuesday, we have Christy Nablum Warren on her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. So from jihad to liberalism to meatpacking, that sounds about a right trajectory for our show. Anybody for Wednesday? Not yet. All right. And Jeffy will not be is not here today. He won't be on the show next week. He is observing the high holidays. And that's going to be I'm going to be doing that right after the show. I'm going to observe my own high holiday. This week's Hangover Cure is cherries. That's how we start every week's live streaming shows by offering you a new Hangover Cure. Again, this week's Hangover Cure is cherries. We want to thank this week's guest, including yesterday's guest, writer Bree Busk, author of the Roar Magazine article, defending the legacy of Chile's 2019 uprising. Bree is an American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile. This is Bree's fourth. This was Bree's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. She was on most recently back in October of last year to talk with us shortly after Chile's vote to rewrite the Constitution. So uh, you can find all of the interviews that we've done with Bree by going to thisishell.com and searching on the name Busk B U S K. Thanks to today's guest, writer Joseph Bernstein, author of the Harper's Magazine September cover story, Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. Joseph is a senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News and a 2021 Neiman Fellow. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Bernstein and find his writing at buzzfeed.com slash Joseph Bernstein. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for booking today's guests. Thanks to Richard Norwood. And uh, thanks to Egon Shealy and Jess Lipka for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin, even though he wasn't here to do the moment of truth. Just thanks, Jeff Dorchin, for all you do for This Is Hell. And Ronaldo Magaldi, thank you for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll be doing my best to decommodify myself in a world that demands... We each become our own commercial, and we'll be sharing a 2005 interview with Peter Kornblue, who led the campaign to declassify official documentation of the secret history of the U.S. government support for the Pinochet dictatorship. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, and stomach-gurgling host. You may have picked that up on the microphone. Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on today's and yesterday's shows. That's by sitting down the 
lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on your that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>